Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our precious Savior Jesus. Amen. Here again these words from our Old Testament reading. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. These are the words of our text. You may be seated. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, there is a complaint registered against the Christian church and against those who preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The complaint is registered against the Apostle Paul and his companions. These men who have come have turned the world upside down, have come here also, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. Now, the gospel does have a tendency to do that. It turns the world upside down. But here's the best part. The world already was upside down because of sin and death, because of human rebellion. The world has been turned upside down. And what the gospel is actually doing is setting it back on its feet once again. You see, you have to understand that the gospel preaches a future hope, which is really a past hope as well. It is the preaching of paradise restored, because paradise once was lost. God created a perfect world. God created a world without pain and trouble, and it has fallen from its former state. Now we live east of Eden, where sin and death reign supreme. Here man returns to the dust of the ground. Here thorns and thistles grow. And here man blames his fellow man, even his spouse, for his own actions. Here the curse of sin has touched everything. But God is coming in the person of his son to bring us back to paradise. He will set all things right. When Jesus rides into the holy city of Jerusalem, not riding upon a proud horse of war like so many warrior kings, but coming gentle and in humility riding a donkey, he rode into a world very much in need of peace. So many warriors had come before him, even the mighty King David. And certainly the Romans paraded into Jerusalem with their great display of power. But Jesus comes 
peace. And it's no great secret that the world badly needs this peace. Wars and rumors of war threaten our own existence. We find that we are at each other's throats. Murder rates climb, nations rise up against nations. Why can't we all just get along? Why do we have to seek out revenge? Why do we have to stake out our turf? For all of man's advancements and all of our growth in culture and technology, we still find that we cannot live at peace. We have learned so much over the centuries, but we have put that learning to use in building smarter weapons and more devious schemes. Now, some would say that the answer is pacifism. And others would point to the need for a strong defense. Or how about a combination of those two things together? How did one Nobel Peace Prize winner put it? Speak softly, but carry a big stick. Well, what about speaking softly? Some would say the best way to deal with war is to seek peace. Negotiation instead of confrontation is the way to resolve these problems. Violence only begets more violence, so we're told. And so we should not respond to aggression with more aggression. And the United Nations was built and founded in New York City as a monument to this same ideal. In fact, you'll find a piece of artwork there at the UN building speaking of the prophecy of our text. There in the central gardens of the UN, you'll find a sculpture of a man beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. But has the UN solved the problems of war? Do we see more peace through negotiations? Or do lies provide a cover for the truth? History has taught us that war is sometimes necessary, a necessary evil, but sometimes necessary nonetheless. <laughs> and what about carrying a big stick? What about a strong defense? The only thing necessary for, triumph to, for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, we're told. But have good men stopped the bad men? Does the strength and resolve of a nation dissuade violence and aggression? Sometimes it seems that the weak go after the strong for the very fact that they are strong. September 11th was an example of low-tech meets high-tech as our own sophistication was turned against us. You can be strong, but you can be attacked for the very reason that you are strong. Pacifism, militarism, speaking softly, carrying a big stick, all these things only manage the problem, and some manage them better than others. But none of them deal with the heart of the problem. The problem goes deeper than all of this, than the money spent on national defense or greater understanding. The problem is within my sin. 
your sin, the sin of the world. James puts it this way in his epistle. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The prophet Isaiah sees a day that's coming in his future in which all things will be set aright. He sees a day when evil will be replaced with good, when war gives way to peace and the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Swords will be beaten into plowshares for planting crops. Spears will be melted down and recast into pruning hooks for harvesting fruit from trees. No longer will nations rise up armies to train against each other. No longer will soldiers train for war. We will all live in the light of the Lord and there will be perfect peace. How? How will this be done? Where? Where will it be accomplished? It won't be in New York City at the UN and it won't be in Virginia at the Pentagon. The answer is in Jerusalem on a hill that will be raised up above all the mountains of the earth. The answer is in Christ who rides into the holy city to establish this peace by giving his life for the life of the world. The prophet Isaiah sees the mountain of God raised up above all the other mountains of the earth. Every other hill must bend its knee to this supreme elevation. And nations will stream up to it like rivers in reverse. The nations will be drawn up into the city that scrapes the very heavens of the earth. No law of gravity will defy this act of God. The swords that once plowed open flesh will be hammered into plowshares that opened up the ground for seed and bread and life. Warriors will become farmers. Spears will become pruning hooks. Everything is turned upside down. But everything is set aright. Everything is put in reverse, but it's set forward once again. For the creator of heaven and earth has come to make all things right. Now Jerusalem is just a few miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And there the land sweeps from the west to the, rice, to the east till it comes to a high point of elevation. It's called Zion. Mount Zion is what they call it. And in the Bible, anytime you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem or you're going down from Jerusalem. And that's because Mount Zion is a peak around 2,500 feet, which really isn't that tall. Even in North Dakota, <laughs> we have some peaks higher than that. But it's not the height of its elevation, but it's what happens in Jerusalem. There is a hill just outside the city called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there our Lord offers his life 
for the life of the world. In Latin, we know it as Calvary. In faith, we know it as the solution to the problem that is within all of us. Now, Jesus would suffer greatly at the hands of his own countrymen. They would cry out for his blood, violence, injustice, and brutal punishment would be his lot. Though he was innocent, he was denied justice. Though he was gentle and did not raise up his voice in defense, he would be denied justice and treated harshly and unfairly. But Jesus is there for sinners, sinners like you and me. Not just there for the terrorists, He's not just there for the violent men. He's not just there for the countries that abuse their power. He's there for the violence that is in the hearts of all men and for the passions that war within us and too often win. He is there for sinners like you and me. And there on Calvary's Hill, everything is set in reverse. On Golgotha, everything is turned upside down. Everything is the opposite of what you would expect because from such an injustice comes the justification of sinners. From one death comes the life for all. And from what is accomplished by guilty men comes innocence for all. And an instrument of cruel torture and death, namely the cross, becomes the symbol of forgiveness, life, and salvation. (laughs) It isn't what anyone expected, but it is what God has done. He has turned the world upside down with the coming of Christ and the preaching of his gospel and thereby sets it back on its feet once again. And this Jesus is coming again. He died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and he is coming again. The first advent will be followed by the second advent, and then he will set all things right. Until that time, peace will still remain the elusive ideal. Bombs will explode, bullets will penetrate, swords will flash, but there is a peace in the world that's not of the world, There at Zion, on that hill is peace in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and the reconciliation between God and man and man and his fellow man. There is a peace that passes all human understanding under the banner and preaching of the cross. Therefore, we cling to this cross and to this great peace and hold it dear, for he who came is coming again to set all things right. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. And now the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding, guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus to life everlasting with him. Amen. Amen.